Well, good evening, everyone. My name is Simon, one of the ministers here. And what a privilege to be able to share with you on this special occasion on Easter Sunday evening. I've got a prop. Yes. It's going to stand with me. Hopefully it's going to stand. Because that's what we're talking about this evening. Over 300 years ago, a monk called Dom Perignon, a Benedictine monk and winemaker, discovered the secret of champagne. And allegedly, at that time, he called people and said, come quickly, I am tasting the stars. Come quickly, I'm tasting the stars. I wonder if you can remember where you were when you first tasted champagne. I'm not talking supermarket bubbly or carver or prosecco or, I'm talking champagne. <laughs> I remember where I was, it was in about 1980, it was at my older sister's wedding. And uh, I don't remember the taste, but I remember the impression. I knew that this was special. Particularly so because my father, who was a teetotaler, had half a glass. And I thought, this must be an event if my dad can have a sip. For most of us, ordinary people, Champagne is what we have on extraordinary occasions. It's reserved for the most special moments and celebrations and occasions. I have a friend who uh, is in retirement now, but they have a bowl and it's just full of corks collected over several decades. Whenever a member of their family got married or engaged or graduated or, or there was a special celebration, they kept the cork from that event and wrote a date on it and an occasion because it was a sign of something that was to be celebrated. Not just an expensive treat, but champagne's really a symbol, a kind of sign and a seal of that event. And what I want to share this evening is this, that Easter Day is the greatest day in the history of humanity. It's the day of days. And it is the party that God threw. Easter Day is the greatest champagne moment. The best news that the world has ever heard came from an empty tomb, a tomb with a view. And I want to suggest three reasons why today is a day for popping the champagne. Firstly, we open the champagne because Easter tells us that Jesus is Lord. The devil wanted Jesus dead because darkness hates the light. The religious leaders and authorities wanted Jesus dead out of jealousy and spite because of his popularity and his power. The Roman authorities, they wanted Jesus dead in order to keep the peace. 
And so the loveliest life that the world has ever known is betrayed with a kiss. And he's tried on trumped up charges and stripped and humiliated and flogged within an inch of his life and forced to carry a cruel cross outside the city walls. And there they crucify him. And there in the mystery and the economy of God, he bears the sins of the world. Crucifixion was designed to humiliate and it was designed to subdue Romans, Rome's enemies. Today, people wear crosses. But 2,000 years ago, crosses wore people. And this weekend, we've been thinking about Jesus who gave his life for us, who died for us on a cross. Love lies bleeding. And he does it because he loves us. And from Golgotha's abattoir, Jesus' lifeless carcass is taken down and laid in the garden tomb and sealed by Pilate's order and blocked by a giant stone and guarded by soldiers. And that was to be the end of it. That was to be the end of it. The end of Jesus the end of the story of this pseudo-Messiah, a Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter. No one expected any sequel. But in the words of the sociologist Tony Campolo, that was only Friday and Sunday's coming. I grew up in a family that didn't drink champagne but liked boxing. And... Uh, some of you will know about the most famous boxing match between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman in Zaire. It was called the Rumble in the Jungle. You can watch it on YouTube if you're so minded. And Foreman, I mean, he was a bull. He was an ox. And Ali was a bit of a dancer. And, and Foreman had Ali on the ropes. And for seven rounds just thundered into him, thud, thud, thud. I mean, he just laced into him, blow after blow after blow after blow, and Ali covers up on the ropes, and he is just getting hammered. And everyone thought it was over. But by the end of the seven, Foreman is just winded. He's just spent everything. The lactic acid is just seizing him up. He's got nothing left. And then the bell goes for the eighth. And off the ropes comes Ali. And with a little bit of a dance and a couple of flicks and a few well-timed, well-aimed blows, down goes Foreman, down and out. It was a great fight, if you're so inclined to follow the boxing. But by analogy, on Good Friday, it was as if the devil had Jesus on the ropes and he let go left and right. And there was no Queensbury rules, but blow after blow after blow. And Christ dies. 
But that was only Friday. And Sunday was coming. And before dawn, three days later, on that first Easter Sunday, as it were, off the ropes, up from the floor, Jesus comes and puts the devil out. In our reading, St. Paul says, his body is sown in dishonor, but raised in glory, sown in weakness, but raised in power. And the resurrection is the greatest display of power the universe has ever seen since the Big Bang. The Big Bang that began creation. And then the resurrection that begins the new creation. The power of God unleashed that raises Jesus from the dead. A power that reverses the curse. A power that confronts and disarms the demonic. A power that overcomes sins. A power to undo all the evil that is wrought. And a power to break through to eternal life. The resurrection is a demonstration and a vindication of Jesus as Lord. And the shadows flee before the glory of the resurrected Christ. No wonder we sing so enthusiastically a minute ago. We've all watched the winner of Formula One races on the podium. They open a huge magnum of champagne and they spray away. I say, what a waste, but that's what they do and they can afford it. You know, that actually began as a practice in 1967 with a racer called Dan Gurney. And he'd just won the Le Mans race. And beforehand, he was mocked and ridiculed by other drivers and uh, by their racing houses. And so when he opened the bottle and started spraying, he aimed it at those who had mocked him. They needed to know who the winner was. And on Easter Sunday, Jesus, as it were, takes off the cork and sprays it on all those who naysayed him. Jesus is Lord. That's the first thing. That's the first reason for this great, godly champagne moment. Secondly, we open the champagne because sins are forgiven. The Bible says if Jesus is not raised, we're still guilty and we're still in our sin. On that Friday afternoon, well, at noon until three, it went dark all over the world. Dark evening, as it were, came early. What was going on? in that darkness. We don't know. It was a marvel. It is a mystery. But I think at least in part, as evil seeks to put out the light of the world, that light goes out all around the world. But I also wonder if there isn't a sense that it's a kind of veil over what was happening. We will never fully see and comprehend the death of our Lord. But what we do know is this, that God is holy and God is just and God is righteous and he must break out against human sin. He must punish it. And not to do so is to undermine his very being 
and to say that God is not just and good. But God is also love, and God can't conceive of an eternity without those who he made in his image to be with him forever. That's us. But sin's got to be sorted. It's got to be covered. It's got to be cleansed. And wrongdoing must be punished and justice must be done. And so God's eternal son becomes flesh. The son of God becomes the son of man. And there at the cross, even as wickedness is having its way, God chooses to work through that and make that the means and the mechanism for sin to be dealt with, for his justice to be satisfied, for forgiveness to be released. And Jesus, the Son of Man, the representative humanity, our sins are put on him, and those sins are punished on him. He freely lays down his life. He said, no one takes it from me, I lay it down freely. He freely lays down his life to give us life. And he does it because he loves us more than himself. But how do we know if that's true? How do we know if his death was sufficient and effective and efficacious? How do we know that our sins can be forgiven? Because the Father raises him from the dead. And the resurrection from the dead is God's yes to his death for us. There's an ancient Jewish myth that recalls that when Israel wandered round the desert worshipping at the tabernacle where God's presence was there in an inner tent, uh, his glory above this golden box, God wanted, always wanted to be with us. But one man, on one day, just once a year, would go in with blood, the blood from a sacrifice that represented the sins of the, the whole nation, and he would sprinkle that blood. But how did they know if God accepted that and that they as a nation were forgiven? According to this ancient Jewish story, it was said that they would hang red hankies, red cloths all the way around the tabernacle tent walls. And it was said they represented their sins, though our sins be red as scarlet. And it was said that after the high priest offered the sacrifice and presented the blood, he would return out of the holy place and all those red rags turned white. It's an amazing story. I'm not sure that's based in history. But I do know this, that when Jesus rose from the dead, which is a historical fact, that all our sins that were red as scarlet could become white as snow because Jesus had taken the punishment He'd been in our place, in our stead, as a substitute, and died for us. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Listen, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. 
It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you see. However far you've been from God, that God longs to forgive you. And God is only looking for you to turn to him and say yes to him. And yes to Jesus' death for you on the cross and all the benefits that he stored up there are applied to you. And you can be forgiven. What an amazing thing that is. Who's ever heard of a thing like that? And then thirdly, we open the champagne because death is defeated. In our reading, we heard, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. Death is the universal experience. Every community has its cemetery. And death casts a long shadow over us from the moment we're born. The anthropologist Ernest Becker said, the idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is the mainspring of human activity. This week I read an interesting article on art, and uh, the author said this, all art is an attempt to understand death and to live somehow before we die, to capture life before it dissipates. Our first ancestor, the Bible calls him Adam, brought a curse on the world by eating the fruit of a forbidden tree. And Jesus, as representative humanity, brings life to the world by drinking the cup of God's judgment on us and dying on a cursed tree. I want to tell you briefly about two friends. The first is called James. He was a friend of mine for 15 years, a former market stall holder. One day I turned up to see him. I saw him every day for 15 years, I, uh, every week for 15 years in the market and often more. We'd go out for lunch. I went up to him and he handed me a book. It said 1906, Salvation Army Songbook, and then the heading, Are You Ready to Die? Like you do. I said to him, I am, I think I am, are you? It wasn't long after that that he became very ill. And the last time I saw him in the street, he'd cut down, lost a lot of weight. I said, James, are you okay? He said, yeah, I'm okay, he didn't want to talk. And then I didn't see him for a month or two, but he was very ill and the cancer was growing in him and he shut himself off from all his friends. Finally, we found out where he was, and a couple went to see him. They kind of forced their way in, and when they saw him in his room, withering, they were able to take him to their car and rush him to intensive care. He was in hospital for a few days, and then they sent him home because he wanted to die at home. I, got to see him just before he died, but he told them, do not tell Simon. I mustn't see Simon. Because he thought that somehow I, as a priest, 
who did funerals, who talked about life and death. Somehow it just made it all too real and he was living in fear. They disregarded his wish. I went to see him. He let me in and I was able to pray for him before he died. Are you ready to die? I don't think James was. To contrast that with another friend, my best pal, Dave White, he died four months ago yesterday at the age of 63. And he had fought for three weeks in intensive care unit, COVID, that just ravaged his lungs and just destroyed them with pneumonia and he was 100% dependent on oxygen that came from a machine. And the doctor said, you're going to have to live with this machine the rest of your life. He said, I'm not going to do that. He said, I want you to turn it off tomorrow morning. He wrote, the following morning at six, they turned it off. His wife, Ruth, came and sat with him. He wrote to his friend, they weren't allowed, to his sons, they weren't allowed to be with him in intensive care. He sent them a message. He said, I love you. I've never been more proud of you. And I'm going to pray for you from the other side. He planned his funeral. He picked the hymns. He picked the readings. He even picked me as the preacher. He said goodbye to his wife. He fell asleep and entered eternity. Just before he became ill, one of the very last texts he sent me, he was talking about dying. And he said this, there's a verse in the Bible that says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his lips, his love is sweeter than wine. The metaphor for God drawing near to us. And he wrote this, the last kiss is when Jesus comes to take our breath away. A sign of his unending love and care for us. I wept buckets when the sun rang to tell me he'd gone. And I opened a bottle of champagne. I had one. Someone had given it to me 18 months before. And I opened it. And mixed my tears with the bubbles. Celebrating my friend who died well. And who's now living forever. The resurrection of Jesus. Whereby his lordship is proven. Our forgiveness of sins is offered. And if we take that. Death is defeated, and we can enter into eternity. Are you ready to die? Are you ready to live? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet will he and she live. So let me finish. Easter is the party that God threw. And uh, it's a great champagne moment. It's a great champagne moment. And we Christians, we know how to party. We know how to party. You know, champagne comes in different size bottles. And all of them, bar one, borrow biblical names. The smallest of them is a magnum. It holds two 75 CL bottles of volume of champagne. 
And after that comes a Jeroboam, that's four bottles. And after that, a Methuselah, eight bottles. And after that, a Balthazar, 12 bottles. And after that, a Nebuchadnezzar, 20 bottles. And the largest of them, do you know what it's called? It's called a Melchizedek. (laughs) And in the Bible, Melchizedek is the name of Jesus. It's one of his names, who is a priest and a king. So we know how to party. And anyone who wants some of this can have it afterwards. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. We can have communion.